Aboru oye baba lawo Iboru oye Welcome to La Cura Podcast, to colonizing Latinx health and reclaiming traditional healing. This is your host, Francisca Porches Coronado. La Cura Podcast is a project of Mi Gente in collaboration with Resilient Strategies. Welcome to La Cura, everyone. I'm so happy you're listening. I am doing a short introduction to this episode for several reasons. It was actually recorded a while back, early February, and it's with Erica Woodland, the founder of the National Queer and Trans Therapist Color Network, which is a healing justice organization that is committed to transforming mental health for queer and trans people of color. And May marked the fourth year anniversary of, of this network. And June is Pride Month. You know, all of us celebrate um, and commemorate the Stonewall Rebellion, which occurred at the end of June 1969. And um, there's tons of Pride events that are held across the country. And um, and it is a month to to really recognize the contributions the impact, the influence, the gifts, the offerings, the dignity, the right to exist, but also the resilience of queer and trans people of color, LGBTQIA peoples, um, two-spirit peoples. And so I thought it was important to, to release this episode. And, and the reason why I hadn't put it out is because uh, this episode is cut a bit short and it wasn't intentional. For some odd reason, the last 10 minutes of our conversation did not record and I was really sad about it. And that was another reason why I hadn't um, published it because I was like, what do I do? Do I bring Erica back? How do I figure it out, right? Um, I have no idea why I didn't record but what's interesting is the last 10 minutes were a conversation around a convening that the network was going to be holding in August, bringing together queer and trans mental health practitioners of color, healers of color, and other folks who were building networks of care like this one. And so this convening has been postponed, which I, I assumed, I think, early on. I'm sorry that the last 10 minutes of the convening conversation is not here, but do know that it was postponed and that I am committed to bringing Erica back to talk about the convening. Just remember that this convening is coming and it's amazing and it's it's open to all queer and trans therapists of color and healers that are queer and trans um, of color and other folks. Happy birthday, National Queer and Trans Therapist of Color Network and all of its members. And happy birthday on this amazing, amazing, beautiful effort. And happy, happy birthday um, to you, Erica, for such a invaluable offering to us all. Welcome everybody to La Cura. 
I want to introduce you to Erica Woodland and tell you a little bit about him. So Erica Woodland is a Black gender queer facilitator, consultant, and healing practitioner, born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. He is also a licensed clinical social worker with more than 15 years experience working at the intersections of movement for racial gender, economic, trans, and queer justice and liberation. Erica is also the founder and director of the National Queer Trans and Therapists of Color Network, which we're going to be talking about quite a bit today, a healing justice organization committed to transforming mental health for queer and trans people of color. And from 2012 to 2016, he served as the field building director for the Brown Boy Project, which is a national gender justice organization working to change the way communities of color understand and experience gender. Also, his consulting practice is rooted in a deep belief that we must restore trust and connection in our relationships, the bedrock of our movements, in order to do work of liberation together. He has worked with a number of groups and organizations to develop structure, management practices, decision-making processes, culture, strategic plans that promote sustainability, healing, alignment, and impact. Erica's training and experience around trauma and crisis also allows him to integrate healing justice into his work, to interrupt patterns that undermine our political organizing, direct service, and healing work. And um, Erica uh, also has a private practice where he provides psychotherapy and clinical supervision in San Francisco Bay Area. He specializes in harm reduction, HIV, intergenerational trauma, resilience, grief, family therapy, and prioritizes working with communities that have the least access to mental health systems, especially people of color, low-income communities, LGBTQTS people, people living with HIV and AIDS. We have somebody pretty special with us today, and I am really happy to be in conversation and to learn more about the work. Uh, So welcome to the show, Erica. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to jump in. Um, I know I just read, read a, a, a pretty extensive, beautiful <laughs> um, a story, a bio about who you are, beautiful project that you've been building since 2016, which we just named the, um, the National Queer and Trans Therapist of Color Network. And so I guess I, I just want us to know a little bit more uh, about you before even that project. I know obviously you're a clinical social worker for more than with more than 15 years of experience, but tell me a little bit more about how you even chose to go into the mental health field. I know that you've been in movement. So were you in social movement spaces before you became a mental health practitioner or was it the other way around? Yeah, this is a really, um, I think, important piece of how I even arrived at Healing Justice because I, you know, I think had this deep knowing that I wanted to engage in like the service work of providing healing space for community, but I did not know the context or container that that was going to happen in. Um, And so as a really young person, I was pretty focused on medical school, um, and kind of went through the really just traumatic and dramatic pre-med process only to pivot mm-hmm. and be like, you know what, instead of this um, last semester of organic chemistry, how about I take a course on the history of the Black Panther Party? Well, <laughs> And I, I would say that actually really became a pivotal moment where I turned away from 
the medical industrial complex and towards kind of these deeper understandings of the histories of why our communities are suffering, because you can't actually do any kind of healing practice without tending to that, understanding that um, in a really uh, complex way. So, you know, I came into social justice work and also direct service work through um, a harm reduction organization in Baltimore City. It was, you know, really, I think, kind of exemplifies bringing organizing advocacy and direct service to folks who are really trying to live live in a world in a way that's completely self-determined outside these systems. And so, you know, I was in my early 20s. I had no experience. I kind of learned on the fly. I learned how to facilitate um, in the Baltimore City Detention Center. Um, I was facilitating support groups for Black women and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, I, I'm, I can figure a lot of things out on the fly, but that was not an ideal situation. But through that work, I was doing... Um, street outreach um, with folks engaging in sex work. And I was doing groups in the prison and jails. And then I ended up meeting my um, one of my mentors, um, who's a former political prisoner, Eddie Conway, uh, who's also a former Black Panther. And so mm-hmm. I really started doing deep work around the prison industrial complex and going in and out of those systems. It became really clear to me that I did not have the skill set to really support folks around the level of trauma they were holding. And so I, because of my educational privilege, I made the decision to pay to get that training through social work school. Um, And it was really a practical decision. I was not like super excited about social work as a profession. Uh, You know, just a lot of harm that the mental health field and social workers in particular participate in. But I did know that I needed a set of skills um, to really be able to, you know, in a way where I felt like in my integrity, I could work with the folks I was working with. Um, and I think mm-hmm. I've, I've known a lot of folks who kind of came into movement work and organizing and, and made a similar pivot um, because we, we needed more tools in our toolbox. Yeah. And so you went from organic chemistry to wanting to learn Black history and specifically through, or you entered through the the history of the Black Panther Party, what was the thing that moved you the most about it? The the Black Panther Party story. I'm totally curious. I know for me that was my introduction into the actual like history of radical movements in this country too. And I went from I think wanting to be pre-law to then be like, oh, the Black Panther Party. I want to learn all about this. I think there is a continues to be a clarity and a precision around the vision (laughs) that Mm -hmm. um, if in my lifetime we manifested the vision of the Black Panther Party, like a lot of things would be tremendously Mm -hmm. different and a lot better for Mm -hmm. all people on the planet. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think there was something to, again, about this piece around protection, organizing and care and the integration and marriage of those um, that really spoke to me that what does it mean to try to bring folks together to fight for our liberation when we don't have our basic needs met and how mm-hmm. um, you know this kind of conversation between care and or service has been really separated from organizing and movement building and that's been deeply intentional. So I think I was just mm-hmm. extremely struck by what it meant um, for them to be like, we're going to actually holistically provide for our people. We're going to 
defend folks um, from police violence. We're going to feed people. We're going to educate people. We're going to create health clinics. And that course actually helped me to understand, you know, there's this kind of popular image of the Panthers that I think is, it's, it's a way to, I think, glorify certain aspects of that work that were not <laughs> glorious. Um, and I think that we <laughs> need to stop relating to the Black Panther Party as if their folks are not still um, alive and able to share kind of what those experiences were. I would also say the other piece that was really central to that learning was a deep, deep understanding and exploration of the counterintelligence program and the links at which yes. the state going to go to take out um, an entire movement. Um, for me, um, you know, I probably took that course in 2001 and then mm. I ended up meeting my mentor um, who's a former Panther and former political prisoner a few years later. And that was not, that was an mm-hmm. accident. I was not looking um, for that connection, <laughs> but I would say that the Panther party has been like a really important through line um, mm. in kind of my arrival at Healing Justice. And it's part of why I say, you know, that we have the language of healing justice now, but these concepts have been in our communities forever. Um, Because really we're talking about how do we respond to suffering? How do we respond to violence? How do we respond to crisis Mm -hmm. and trauma? And our folks have always known how to do that, even when the state was intentionally trying to undermine that. Right. Absolutely. And you said you were you were thinking about going to medical school, right? When you arrived at this? I did, yes. Yeah, <laughs> and so that makes a lot of sense then how you would, what you would extract, right? It's like the lens that we're looking at stuff and what you would extract from the lessons of the party and what would be the most fascinating and and really at the heart of what they were trying to do. And so then tell us a bit about then, given that I, I totally agree, I think our ancestors forever have been doing the work of building resilience, but also practicing both, you know, the traditions that have allowed us to survive and then intentional resilience building. And, you know, as a way to either have protection or as a way to um, ensure that the next generation comes into manifestation or Mm -hmm. as a way to back oppression. And so um, this newish, I guess you would say, yeah, it's relatively new uh, sort of framework of healing justice has honors a lot of that. And and then also it's um, a path forward in some way, a framework, uh, somebody could call it a strategy, somebody could call it a tactic, depending on what school of thought you come from. And so curious for you to tell us a bit more of what it means to you, what healing justice means to you. Yeah, I would, I would say actually healing justice found me. And when I found the framework and came to understand and really deeply study it, I was like, oh, it, it actually put a lot of my journey into context. Um, and so for me, it is the container in which I do all of my spiritual, personal, political work um, because it is... Um, it's a place where we can be deeply explicit about the systems and structures of violence that we are resisting, that we have survived, and also um, acknowledging and like having an understanding of the impact of those systems and the ways that our communities have innovated to respond to them. Um, and so for me, there is this piece around resilience, which 
I love that word and I hate that word because words don't mean anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, yeah. resilience is a real thing. And also, and all these things can be weaponized, right? Um, and I've seen resilience get used against, you know, marginalized communities, in, especially in the field of mental health. But we can talk about that in a second. Um, but there is this kind of, for me, piece around resistance in addition to resilience, right? Because it's not just about how are we coping with conditions that are unacceptable and inhumane, but also how are we resisting those structures and systems and conditions? And what does it mean for us to develop politicized ecosystems of care where, you know, in my opinion, we need all the tools in the toolbox. So I think that we not only have a right to heal, um, I think that we have a right to heal in a way that honors our dignity and our humanity and our mm-hmm. self-determination. And so in order to be inside of our self-determination, people have to consent to healing and people have to consent to the modalities that are going to work for them. And psychotherapy is one modality, right? Yes. But there are so many modalities that have been criminalized historically that are actually really, really important, especially the folks of color and, and Black and Indigenous folks specifically. Um, so for me personally, once I arrived at Healing Justice, it actually helped me to understand why I turned away from medicine. Now, I turned towards psychology and social work, and that really was a harm reduction move because those um, fields are not, mm-hmm. uh, they're not better at all. Um, but it did point me towards a different way of orienting to folks spiritually, emotionally, and psychically. And I think that that was really, really important. Tell us more about this, the way in which resilience has been weaponized. I know it's become like a big popular word, like the word trigger, which gets on my nerves. (laughs) Uh, But we can talk about that later too. Uh, (laughs) I'm like, can please, people, please. Like I actually do have family that has for real PTSD and like, suffers <laughs> from bipolar disorder and yeah. you know mm-hmm. no you're not triggered like like yeah. you don't even know what they have started on that rant but um but tell us a, a bit about how resilience has been weaponized by the mental health field um, in your experience absolutely I mean I think in in the most fundamental way um, the field of mental health really, social work's a little bit different, but generally you're looking at individual people and their problems. And you are very rarely kind of considering the context in which um, people are navigating certain issues. So I'm thinking about, you know, when I was getting trained up in this work, I was, uh, I intentionally wanted to do my internships in schools because I wanted to more deeply understand the continuum of prisons and incarceration. And a lot of what I was being expected to do was basically meet with young people to get them to um, act in a way that was orderly and not disruptive mm. um, and to listen to their stories of pain and trauma, whether it was from the community's families or the school itself, and kind of be a place for release around that, but not actually... Um, acknowledge or honor that like people are having human responses to things that are extremely devastating. Right. And so our expectations of what, how we expect people to, to be in the world in a world that's trying to exterminate us are completely unrealistic and ridiculous. And so I think a lot of times we're, um, we're really taught to help people cope with conditions that we should be also trying to change. And so again, we, 
without our collective resilience, you know, I know I would not be here if it were not for the collective resilience of my ancestors. However, my ancestors were also fighting. <laughs> my ancestors were also resisting. Mm-hmm. My ancestors were also going underground and creating in- ecosystems of care and survival. Um, my ancestors were doing things that were considered illegal to ensure that that I could be here today. Um, so it's not just about as a therapist sitting in a room with someone and kind of being and helping people learn skills to quote unquote self regulate. Mm-hmm. So I think the part of the reason that my um, consciousness raising was so integral to even my own personal healing is because I had the experience of being like, oh, all these things that I've internalized about myself, they're not from me and they're not real. This is by design. And so I get to inhabit my actual authentic self and my liberated self in a different way when I understand these systems and structures are actually set up to take me out. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't learn how to cope, but it does mean that's not the the entirety of the work that I think should be happening in psychotherapy specifically. Right. And it also it's a very limited definition of what resilience is, right? Mm-hmm. It's that the exactly. you learn how to cope, you learn how to regulate your nervous system, and you somewhat you survive the next day and you mm-hmm. ensure that, you know, whoever else is after you survives. And many times I think it's been equated with survival, which is not the same. And then right. also it's been individualized and, and that it has been, it has been separated uh, or extracted from what the actual movement for fight for struggle for liberation. Uh, and also to, like you said, create systems of care and survival. And so I like to think that part of our task as people who believe in healing justice and um, are practitioners of some sort in, you know, systems of care is to really widen the definition of what resilience is to be able to include also the fight, right? And transforming systems of oppression and the way in which our people are transforming um, the world that we navigate and want to exist in and, and thrive in. And so I totally agree. Also curious about how this then led you, given your critiques of mental health and and all of that, how this led you to the network that you've created and what was the the impetus I get, like the need is is huge for a politicized analysis of mental health that includes systems change, I think, for mm-hmm. trans and queer people of color and for therapists of color, because I think there are definitely two categories. Like now that I work more, more with therapists of color, I know that it is really isolating. Anyone wants to colonize the hell out of you and more. Yep. And then there's also the people receiving the care, right? That also is the same. So curious about what brought you to this. So I think like, at, you know, any social worker, I have too many jobs and too many things I <laughs> am involved in. And so um, I think I've always kind of moved between um, organizing in some fashion, movement building, direct service work, and really trying to understand how to bring those different parts of me together. And so, you know, when I moved to the Bay Area in 2007, 
I, you know, was in an environment where there were, you know, were just there was way more of a conversation around mental health. It was super destigmatized. I, I remember moving here and people would just openly talk about going to therapy. And I was like, wow, you're not like whispering <laughs> this you know, off to the side. Um, and there are a lot of queer and trans folks of color here and folks who've really migrated from across the country because there's this kind of illusion of safety and <laughs> radicalism in the Bay. So yeah. um, I think that being here really, um, actually the environment supported me to see more possibility around like, what does it mean to be a mental health practitioner and bring these radical values with you? You don't have to kind of hide those and keep those separate from the work. Um, so in 2009, three queer and trans therapists of color in the Bay Area, they started a local network and it was really in response to being a part of kind of other more larger LGBT um, networks of therapists that were that were just not providing the space to address white supremacy at all. And so that that local network that started in 2009, it became a space for deep connection um, and just being being with each other, being able to build community with other practitioners who were experiencing a lot of isolation. So being a therapist is isolating because we are holding a lot of people's stories and we're holding all this confidentiality. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is true of a lot of different types of healing practitioners. I think it's true of a lot of folks who are um, doing transformative justice work, but it there's a way that not you can't openly talk about your work. A lot of folks can't understand it. And so that local group um, initially, the first few years met in person, and those relationships really those relationships helped to build a foundation to really see the power of what can happen when folks from a community come together and align around a set of values. So simultaneously, um, I started doing national movement building work with the Brown Boy Project, and I worked with a lot of queer and trans. Um, folks of color who were leading movements, who were leading organizations. And a lot of folks were asking about mental health support. And just by virtue of my role in the organization and because um, I was a practitioner, people would talk to me openly about what they were navigating. And I, if folks were based in the Bay, I could connect them to resources. But if folks were in other parts of the country, I didn't know. So it was both a selfish kind of act to start the network. First, I was like, I want to know where my people are like across the United States. Um, and then I also <laughs> was really tired of like, you know, going on the internet to be like, I'm going to try to find this person, somebody to talk to. Um, and I was just mm -hmm. like, someone should start a network. So literally for five years, I was in my mind, I was like, someone should start a national network. Someone should start a national network. <laughs> this is really how spirit works because at a certain point in time, it became really clear. Spirit was like, so that is you on me. I need you to like get it all the way together. <laughs> and I started the network as a passion project. It was going to be like something that I kind of did for fun. I thought it was going to take years before anybody cared about the mental health and healing of queer and trans people of color. And it quickly mm -hmm. became an organization. Um, and like, you know, I was not prepared. I was not prepared for the response and I was not prepared for people's readiness to really engage with a radical vision around healing justice. Um, mm. so in 2016, you know, I, I just shared that I wanted to do this on Facebook and we had a closed Facebook group. And within a week we had 700 people in the group. Um, we had people from all over the world who were trying to join the group. And my email, um, inbox was full of individual requests for, 
um, referrals. And I was like, I cannot be the case manager for the United States. So wow. our, our first project <laughs> was a directory because I was like, you know, how do we create systems? Like there are people who are um, in local and regional communities that are deeply connected to other QTPOC practitioners. And we're really trying to create um, the landing spot for folks to find each other and connect. And from that place to be inspired to build what they need in their communities for queer and trans folks of color. Hmm, 700. Wow. That's huge. And worldwide. Are you a worldwide <laughs> network? I don't know. We're, are you we're, across we're the world? Not. We're, we're not. Uh, not because we don't want to be, but because we really want to be intentional. Um, mm-hmm. So right now, most of our folks are based in the United States, um, you know, including the territories and colonies. Um, but we do have folks in our network who are based in Canada. So we're U.S. focused, North America friendly. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but there is a way that like I'm super interested in how the work we're doing here could have meaning or value in a global context. Um, but we need to mm-hmm. be resourced to do that um, because it's actually irresponsible to try to create an international platform where you don't have the ability to respond to those requests. Absolutely. Yeah. So even just to take a step back, um, I know you had said that folks in the Bay were openly speaking to you about their mental health stuff and, which is great. Um, and then also that's what motivated you, inspired you to create this network. What did you see or, you know, people, 700 people asking for referrals. Um, what are the kind of needs that our folks have? I know it's, you know, it could be like very, very um, diverse needs, but they are very particular and they are not being met clearly, if not there hadn't yeah. been that kind of response. And so curious about the the needs that folks are having, you know, being very intentional about fulfilling some of those needs. So the work of the network has always been kind of twofold. Um, we know folks need and want and are deeply supported by practitioners who are actually from their communities. Um, We understand, you know, even the limitations of queer and trans people of color is like an umbrella term. Like our community is so diverse. Our community um, is so complex and there's a lot of nuance. Right. So just because you're a queer trans therapist of color does not mean you're equipped to work with somebody Mm -hmm. who's from our community. So first and foremost, we need to um, connect and resource and mobilize practitioners from our community who actually want to be of service to other queer and trans people of color. And so in that way, um, there's a real need to both be able to find practitioners in your community, but then also um, a lot of folks have to access therapy through folks who are in private practice. Um, And, you know, because of the nature of healthcare in this country, a lot of folks, if they have insurance, the insurance might not be able to work with practitioners who are from their community. So there's all these like larger systemic issues um, that we hope to address in the future. But our first kind of point of contact is providing a foundation for queer and trans practitioners of color to like be able to engage with healing justice as a framework and to be able to engage with healing justice as a set of values. 
And so we spent a lot of our first three years just doing that, doing listening sessions, like also understanding that queer and trans therapists of color are also people who need therapists, right? So there's the, there really is no distinction yeah. between, oh, well, there's community members and then there's therapists. No, I need a therapist too, right? Yeah. Um, and it becomes even more difficult when you're in community with colleagues and you're like, I can't actually see that person. Um, so right. I think there's this huge piece around training up and making sure people are have the political education to understand healing justice and to understand that no matter where they're engaging in their practice, that if they're going to have impact in our community, they need to really um, understand the kind of ways that historical um, violence, trauma, and specifically the the ways that state violence intersects with our communities impacts people's um, coming in to work with folks. So I think the other need that we're really actively trying to address is, you know, really intervening around kind of who gets held up as a professional in this work and who is not. So what we know Mm -hmm. is that we're focused on psychotherapists because, you know, those are our people and we need to get our people together. But most of our mental health care comes outside of the system. So we're also really in deep consideration um, for folks who are formally and informally providing peer support, folks who are practicing in other healing modalities, who also need to be in conversation as folks who are tending to the emotional um, and mental health of our people. So a lot of what we're doing, we're trying to really modify an organizing strategy to both connect folks and to do movement building and have practitioners see themselves as part of movement. Because I, I believe that it, we have a duty to be of service to movement. Um, and a lot of therapists are trying to figure out a way to participate in movement, but because of the nature of our work, it gets really complicated. Yeah. And so what, what do you hope, um, along with obviously the really crucial, important analysis around healing justice and around practitioners seeing their role in, in some ways, like being a bridge, I think, between movement and practitioners and having practitioners see their role. What do you hope that ultimately will be the role that practitioners take? I mean, I know there's a directory to the network and um, what are the other ways, whether now or in the future that you hope practitioners will do? That's a great question. So I've thought a lot about all the different places that um, mental health practitioners are able to do their work. So some folks are in private practice, some folks are in really big, huge medical systems like the VA. Um, Some folks are working in child welfare, like we're everywhere and so in that way, we have the ability to intervene on a lot of different levels. We are really clear that we need an inside and outside strategy um, if we're going to heal and if we're going to get free. And so our long-term vision and goal is to actually organize practitioners around um, what does it look like to directly intervene on the medical industrial complex and what does it mean to also, as a site of intervention, create alternative systems for people to access 
right? And so it's not that these things aren't happening, but it's that we're not connected and we're not organized. So um, mm-hmm. one of the things that is really essential to our work and that we're going to be building out over the next year or two through our field building is really helping folks see and map, like, here's where I am intervening and here are all the other people across the country who are intervening on that system. And what does it look like, for instance, to have practitioners who are, you know, in a trans health clinic in a big medical system who are like, I am going to no longer act as a gatekeeper for people to get the care that they need to transition. The, the gate is open, right? There's somebody like that we work with closely in our network who's like, the gate is open. If I'm here, then come one, come all, right? So people are doing things to undermine and subvert these systems all the time mm-hmm. because we have to, right? And a lot of stuff we're not going to talk about publicly, right? <laughs> because, you know, there's yeah. risk involved. But but people are doing things to ensure the survival of our community members. And they mm-hmm. we want to make sure folks understand that as part of a larger uh, organizing strategy, strategy that's happening across the country. Um, so I think that that's kind of one of our long-term goals. I would also say that there's this huge opportunity around what is going on around healthcare in this country. I am not a policy person, but there are a lot of social workers in particular who are really geeking out on policy. Um, you know, the <laughs> National Association of Social Workers has a pretty big presence in D.C., I'm like, that's not my uh, wheelhouse, but there are people in our community who are, I think, um, in positions to influence the way federal funding is directed, the way some of these systems and policies are rolling out, you know, also on the state and local level. So I think there's just huge, huge, huge opportunities, but we can't get there if people are super isolated and disempowered. And what I will say that I've seen a lot is that especially folks who are working in agencies or larger systems, um, those systems are designed to remove your humanity from you <laughs> and to yeah. you know, create a workforce of folks who are exploited and burnt out and then no longer able to see the humanity of folks they're working with. And people feel, I think, really conflicted about working in those systems um, I think people are also able to do really good work in those systems, um, usually um, all alone. But there's a lot of um, scarcity and there's a lot of, you know, just a lack of belief that something else is possible. So, you know, I, I think we have a, I think the network has a responsibility to support people who are intervening directly um, in systems to really say, we see you, we got you, you're not alone. Um, and, and if there's a time where you feel like your work is better served outside of that system, here are all the different possibilities for what that could look like. Hmm. I love that. Especially cause I, I, you know, early on when the family separation stuff was happening at the border, mm-hmm. um, yeah. there was a few articles that were written in case anybody caught them about both from the psychologists and psychology types associations that were coming out like denouncing uh, what was happening and the impact on on children and on parents and prosecution and all that stuff. And then there were um, a few others that were being really critical of the people inside um, the mental health practitioners and people in the medical field that were working in detention centers and detention facilities that were in some way colluding or cooperating yeah. with with authorities to 
uh, and really violating HIPAA and all the other privacy sort of, um, mm. you know, policies and using some of the statements by these children and young people to really criminalize the parents. And so mm. there was a lot of critique. I think there was a lot happening and, and, and mental health practitioners are really weighing in in a lot of different ways. And I think there was a current of, you know, there was a, a, I think from the immigrant rights movement perspective was like, we need to just ask, you know, all those mental health practitioners to not comply and to just walk out, you know, and like leave those places. And then I had, I had a good, like somebody checked me hard and was like, no, like our people, like, yes, there's really fucked up people in these spaces and we need to call them out for what they're doing. And there's also a lot of human, good human, decent people, the human beings that are attempting to create space and create, you know, a different type of care and, you know, the difference that it could make for a child or a parent or a trans person in detention or, you know, all kinds of folks um, uh, that go see a doctor or a, um, just as much as our people might get neglected medically, they might Mm -hmm. also have a good human being in there who's really taking care of them and looking out for them in some ways. And so it's a, it, it just reminds me of that, what you're saying around how do we politicize the hell of our, out of our people in the mental health field mm-hmm. and how do we um, provide them with a sort of like framework and analysis of systems, but also given that our people are everywhere, right? Whether it's the veterans hospital or whether it's a detention center or whether it's a clinic or an agency, it's like, how do we um, weave together a strategy that they all are a part of, they see themselves as a part of um, collectively, that then it is being carried out. And it is like a challenge at scale in some ways of both the Mm -hmm. field and their role in it, you know, and the kind of care that our people want to give, even if we don't ever mess with, DC sort of le- legislative mm-hmm. policies, like right. maybe at state, maybe in in a particular institution. Like, so I totally relate to what you're saying, and it makes complete sense. And obviously, really grateful for the work that the network is doing, and also like the just the like rising to the level of theory in some ways beyond the practice on the ground, and really thinking through what a strategy could look like, which is really exciting to me. So where is it at now, the network? Like, how many members do you have? Are they everywhere? What does it look like? How does it work? So that's a great question. Um, So we have members all over the country. We have critical mass of folks in New York, in the Bay Area, Southern California, um, places that you would expect. We're deepening our relationships with practitioners in the Midwest and Southeast in particular. And it's hard to say how many members we have because we're still in a question around how are we defining membership? Um, we, mm. we're, we're focused on psychotherapists, but our community is not just therapists. So um, in one way, I would say we have a lot of members, but I think that is a question that we have to be inside of. Like, what does membership actually mean? Um, right now it is, if you're a queer trans person of color and you are invested in healing justice and, and thinking about how to bring that into your work, then you can ride with us. <laughs> um, and <laughs> you know, that's extremely broad, but I think it, it makes sense kind of based on where we are developmentally. Um, I would say the biggest kind of piece of work for us right now to this piece around strategy 
um, is connected to the convening that we're doing in August. Um, because we've done a lot of listening over the past three years. We've done a lot of responding to people's kind of immediate needs and requests, right? So the directory, we have a mental health fund, we're doing some practitioner development work and training. We are, you know, doing some technical assistance with organizations that work with queer and trans folks of color around like, what does it mean to bring healing justice into your organizational work in a way that you can actually meet the needs of folks who are going to be working with your organization. Um, and there's a, there's a way in which you know, we need everybody to have a certain baseline knowledge of trauma and what it means to integrate healing justice into anything that we're doing, if we're going to make it. I mean, 2020 is just such an, it's already been such an intense year <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. only been way more intense. I feel like five years have passed in two months and, yes. you know, all of my spiritual teachers are like, yes, get ready. Like it's going to, it's going to be, it's going to show us what we're made of. And I don't think that that has to be a, a fearful thing. I think that that's going to, for a yeah. lot of us, be a really powerful and transformative experience. But if we are not organized and we are not ready and we're not anticipating what's to come, then we're going to be completely ill-prepared like a lot of us were in 2016. Yes, and so my God. That really for us is about now that we have the basics, we are looking at what is our field building strategy? What does it actually mean to organize psychotherapists? That's that's such a specific group. And you can't use, you can't just take traditional community organizing models and plop that into mental health practitioners who are thinking about HIPAA and confidentiality and risk. And like, yeah, you know, absolutely not. Like just, I know, you know, <laughs> the struggle. So, um, you know, a lot of what we're doing this year is bringing folks together at our convening to have a deeper conversation around like, what is our strategy? And actually, how do we physically, emotionally, and spiritually prepare for the times ahead? Mm. Um, In 2016, Mm -hmm. our practitioners, as we know, were extremely burnt out because all of the folks that we were working with were experiencing more crisis People were experiencing more um, suicidality. And so that Mm -hmm. meant, even though we were also traumatized by what was happening in the world, we also were providing care. So this piece around um, us being the container to think about and explore healing for healers is super important. Um, And I do not want us to be caught off guard like we were in 2016. I'm like, we we can anticipate that it's going to get really wild out here. And there are things that we can do now to prepare for that. And some of that is, is both about strategy, and, but some of that is about restoration and renewal and like really looking at um, what strategies do we need to employ to have long-term sustainability. Um, I am yeah. very committed to not being a raggedy healer. Um, I, do <laughs> do my, I don't do my best work when I'm raggedy. None of us do. Like I can still do good work, like slightly raggedy, but... I don't want to <laughs> be in a world where um, we are providing healing space for folks and it's at the expense of our vitality and, you know, being able to have a long life, you know, like I'm, I'm, yeah, those are non-negotiable for me. And I think a lot of folks are ready to have that conversation, but what it, what it's going to require of us is massive and we can't do that alone. 
Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, edited by Lourdes Hernandez. Music is by Rafael Maya. Find us on social media at La Cura Podcast and at Con Mi Gente, C-O-N-M-I-J-E-N-T-E. Please rate us, subscribe so that you are notified as soon as the newest episode drops and share your favorite episodes with your friends. Bye-bye,